The search had been on. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this crowd who had gathered uh, to hear some teaching of Jesus on a hillside, and they'd got hungry. And uh, they were looking for what Jesus would do. And of course, we saw this extraordinary miracle that Jesus provided for 15,000 people around that, if you include children and women in the numbers. And since then, you've had these crowds who have just been chasing, searching after Jesus because they think this might be what they call the latter redeemer, a kind of second Moses, a second saviour, who they hoped might be able to liberate them from the Romans like Moses had liberated the Israelites, the Hebrews, from the Egyptians. They'd seen the bread and the manna. And they thought, hmm, this bread does remind us of the manna given in the desert through Moses. And then they saw how Jesus had provided fish. And thought, oh, maybe this is like the quail that had been provided through Moses in the desert. And they're going, oh, maybe, just maybe, this is the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus, true to form, doesn't just please the crowd. He goes off to another mountainside instead of giving them what they want. He goes to be with his Father. The nature of the world is to please the crowds, to seek the acclaim of the crowds. But the nature of the kingdom of God is to hear the Father's voice. Jesus' satisfaction was not in what people thought of him. His satisfaction was in his Father. The crowds are incredulous. I mean, they're so keen to get him that they gathered boats from all over the region and chased him across the sea. One of those boats had the disciples in it because Jesus had said to them, go across Pernahim. And in the middle of the night, in a great storm, in the middle of the sea, which symbolized death, like a grave, they saw this ghostly-like figure appear and they think, because culture had told them this, that this ghostly figure has come to pronounce their death. Right there in the middle of the sea where Leviathan was supposed to lurk. But it wasn't death. It was Jesus. And he calms the storm and he takes them home. That second miracle comes right after says, it is I. In other words, I am. And he walks the waves, and he calms the storms, and he transports them home to Capernaum. Now the crowds were right. There's lots of Exodus themes going on in these passages. But Jesus didn't have God part the waves. Jesus walked on the waters like Job described of God. He's more than a prophet. He's more than Moses. He's the I am, the one without the need of an introduction. This is God incomparable, walking on the waves. The crowds didn't see the action on the sea. And so when they finally find him, they're confused. 
did you get here? How did all this happen? What's going on? And so that is the first of five questions that we're going to look at in this passage that we've just heard read. Now the questions actually move after the first question to a synagogue in Capernaum. We find that out in verse 59 at the very end that they've been hearing this teaching in a synagogue. So let's not confuse ourselves and think this is all happening on the shore. This is in a synagogue and it's the kind of discourse, the kind of discussion that you might expect to take place, a kind of questioning and answering session that would take place in a synagogue. And so that's what we see going on, this rabbi Jesus explaining who he truly is. The first question is one of authenticity. They weren't only interested when they were asking this question in Jesus' uh, directions. This wasn't just about the satnav, uh, the way that the satnav took him. They wanted another miraculous sign and Jesus saw through it. They'd seen that he hadn't gotten the boat with the disciples. And so they're going, what's going on? Are you the real deal? Has this happened miraculously? Verse 26, yes, Jesus says, but not to satisfy what you think you need. You're looking to me for satisfaction, but actually you're looking for all the wrong things. You need the real deal, the authentic me, as laid out in scripture. You don't need a knockoff. And that's what you're looking for in me when you're looking for me to do these things. Pretenders like old bread get moldy and spoil. It's not genuine, life-giving saviors that they're looking for. They're looking for something that's going to provide what they think they need to be satisfied. I wonder what you think you need to be satisfied. What do you want from God? What do you ask him for? And do you think that in him giving you that thing, you're going to become satisfied? That your dissatisfaction will be met there? And is what you're asking, is your aim, your goal in life, is it something that is unfading, unspoiling, never disappointing? Or is it something that will disappear? That will burn up? That will float away like in the wind? Jesus says that he carries the approval of his Father. He's got a heavenly certification embossed by God the Father. He's got proof that he provided the real deal, that he can provide everlasting life. The satisfaction of the heavenly places is here in Jesus. These words would take the hearers to John the Evangelist's gospel. As they read, as they hear John the Evangelist's gospel in the synagogues, think about these guys listening in Ephesus and other places while this is being read aloud. And they immediately think, ah, I know what he means by that. I know what he means by that guarantee. I know what he means by that authentication. I know that he's talking about his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, that's what I call an endorsement. God himself declaring him as his son. 
fourth century African bishop Augustine of Hippo compared this kind of limited nature of the fakes and of the limitless nature of the authentic God that's found in Christ like this. But what do I love when I love my God? Not the sweet melody of harmony and song, not the fragrance of flowers, perfumes and spices, not manna or honey, not limbs such as the body delights to embrace. It is not these that I love when I love my God. And yet when I love him, it is true that I love a light of a certain kind, a voice, a perfume, a food, an embrace. But they are of the kind that I love in my inner self, when my soul is bathed in light that is not bound by space. When it listens to sound that never dies away, when it breathes fragrance that is not borne away on the wind, when it tastes food that is never consumed by the eating, when it clings to an embrace from which it is not severed by fulfillment of desire, this is what I love when I love my God. Jesus is the real deal. And he carried heaven's authentication. The second question that they ask verses 28 and 29, is a question of viability. Can he make it work? As he moved to the synagogue, it's a perfectly natural question for them to ask. If you're the real deal, how do we do this? Lay it out for us. It's a question of viability. Show us how this works. Now, we if we're honest with ourselves, ask ourselves these sorts of questions all the time, especially in a world of productivity. And habit, and that kind of, we're in that kind of habit, aren't we, of jumping to a set of actions to do in order to work out how we can be happy. So something like, okay, I want to get healthier. If I want to get healthier, I need to work out what to do, what workout program, what diet to have. If I want to be smarter, What do I do if I want to get a partner? What do I do if I want to be a good parent? What do I do if I want to get that job? What is it that I can do to get that job? If I want to be rich, what is the way in which I can find riches, earn the money that I want to earn? Everyone wants happiness, don't they? They want satisfaction. But what if we're all looking in the wrong place? You would think it would make us all much happier if we were all working really hard to work out what it is that we can do to become happier, to be more satisfied. Better yourself to be happier, of course, right? Well, a study in 2012 at the study in University of California in Berkeley, they tried to discover the effect of pursuing happiness on how satisfied a person feels. They took wide-ranging participants and they asked how much they agreed with statements like this. I value things in life only to the extent that they influence my personal happiness. And I am concerned about my happiness even when I feel happy. Now, I would have expected that those who are high on the scale of pursuing happiness and satisfaction, who consciously try to seize the day, would score more highly on their satisfaction scores. 
right? The more you pursue it, the more likely you are to be happy. But the study actually found the opposite. The more that you tend to focus on how to be satisfied, actually, the more likely you are to report feeling down than others. Even in times of relatively low stress. Jesus knew this. He knew that the pursuit of happiness and satisfaction doesn't work. He knew that it was a miserable endeavor. He knew that a success dependent on our own ability would kill us. That's why Jesus' response in verse 29 is not, okay, I know what you can do. You can read more Bible. That will really help you. Pray as, as well as I pray. Just like I do on the mountainside. I'd prefer if you did it on the mountainside early in the morning. Perform more miracles. Be nicer. Just be a nicer person. Stop sinning. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. None of those things, he says. Instead, he says, one word. He says a bit more than that, but it's essentially one word. Believe. That's it. Believe in him. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, you don't know me. If you did, you wouldn't say that I could be satisfied just by believing. Nothing, nothing that you do or don't do is enough. We've got to get that in our heads. Only faith in Jesus is enough. The Apostle Paul said to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 28, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, law in Jesus alone. Jesus has come to liberate, all right. He's come to bring about freedom. But maybe not from what we think. One reason Jesus came was to liberate us from this miserable pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. He has a life of satisfaction for us that is far more effective than our own ability. It is a cultural stronghold for us. One that when we hear this kind of thing, we find it hard to truly believe it. But it's true. Your efforts alone will get you nowhere. You need Jesus. And so the third question is a natural one to follow on. It's a question of credibility. Can we really believe him for this satisfaction? For this life? You might listen to all that and just think, ugh. It all just sounds a bit too good to be true. I've been around the block, you know. I've seen it all before. I know that it's not that simple. Nothing is free in this life. That's the sentiment behind that third question. They want a sign. Okay, if this is true, give us a sign. How can we believe you? Prove to us, Jesus, that you're not overpromising. Like some politician, like Rishi Sunak. He's a bit under the pressure at the moment, isn't he? I'm not making any political statements, so don't worry. 
but he's been under a lot of pressure. Why? Because he made this pledge to conservative voters and to the nation that he would half inflation. And it doesn't look likely that he's going to be able to do that. Jesus is being grilled as if he is a politician on trial. Essentially, they don't think the claims are credible or trustworthy. We don't think you're going to follow through, Jesus. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe deep in your heart somewhere you think, actually, I want to believe, but I just don't know if he's going to follow through. Moses provided bread every day. You've only done it once, Jesus. Come on then, give us more. Jesus' response is strong. It begins very truly. Now that's like an amen at the beginning of the sentence. It's like, hey, I'm about to make a statement. Listen up here. You, this, this is kind of the crux of my argument. You've, you've got to listen to this one. You're actually making far too much of Moses. God is the one who gave Moses manna in the wilderness. He's the real giver of bread. So stop seeking this wilderness prophet when there's a far greater gift than manna on offer. By verse 35, he's built up to the crescendo. I am the bread of life. Now the I am marks a theophany. It's the first of seven I am statements. He has he does say that I am in other ways throughout the gospel. These seven I am statements are kind of brought together in a grouping. This is the first one. And each of them follows on with I am something. So this one, I am the bread of life. It marks a theophany. It marks an an appearing of God. It marks this moment where Jesus is saying, I'm God. So God said, look, uh, Jesus said, look, I am before you. God is before you. What he had revealed when he came on the waves and said, it is I, and calmed the storm and brought them safe to shore, he's making clear in what he says here now in the synagogue in Capernaum. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. I'm not just like them. I'm their God. I'm the one who provided for them. I'm the one who did all of those works in the wilderness through them. And by adding to I am the bread of life, he is declaring what we know from the prologue, the beginning of John, the first 14 verses. He is the word, the Torah become flesh. More than that, first 19 verses, I think it is. Um, He is the Torah, he's the word become flesh. He's the source of life and satisfaction. Through him all things were made, in him was life. The word is the embodiment of all the life-giving words of the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, these are my credentials. I have credibility and you can trust me because I am. I am the bread of life. I am the one who can feed your soul forever. It seems that he's particularly drawing on Isaiah 55, a a particular passage in which Jesus is drawing from throughout this whole section that we're looking at. And in verses 10 and 11 in Isaiah 55, Jesus is saying, look, I am 
these things that you suppose will come in a saviour. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. He is the word in Isaiah 55, 11. It goes on, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. Do you see that? It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. He is a bringer of satisfaction in verse 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Jesus is majorly upping the stakes here. You expect too little, Israel. I have come to do all this. He is Torah, all of the words of God coming true in him. He is wisdom, the Lord we should fear, from Proverbs 9.5, who invites us to come and eat. The bread Moses gave was from God, but a sign of an imperishable bread, one that would last, one that would not get mouldy, Jesus. Jesus doesn't just provide the bread, he is the bread. He is the way to satisfaction and to everlasting life. Want a bread that will keep you satisfied forever? Come, says Jesus, and eat. But can we just pause for a moment here? There's something just important for us to notice. Jesus realizes in verse 36 that the people are not persuaded by him. If this was a worldly pursuit of satisfaction, this would be seen as a failure in this moment. The crowds have majorly dwindled. They can all fit inside the synagogue now. And even if it was packed, it can't be anything like the 15,000. There's a lot of cynicism. We're about to see a couple of questions come that's basically grumbling and moaning, a bit like the Israelites in the wilderness. Hmm. They see him, and yet they don't believe. Shouldn't Jesus just walk away? Surely his credibility's gone at this point. If he's a political leader, maybe people are saying to him, look, the honorable thing for you to do right here would just be to drop out the race, and it's time to endorse somebody else. How does he not pander to people in a situation like that? How does he remain confident? How does he stay steady? How does he stay clear-minded about who he is? He remains in the hustle and bustle of many voices as just as he was, I expect, on the mountainside when he prayed. Captivated and led by one voice. The voice of his father, in heaven. His identity, his confidence, his credentials are understood by one simple thing. He knows who he is according to his father. He trusts his father above all else. Jesus is immovable in his satisfaction because he is satisfied in his father alone. He does not need 
the approval of others, and he doesn't find satisfaction in the perception of others. All of his satisfaction is in his Father. And that is where we need to look for ours. And so the next bit of grumbling is a question that they ask about origination. What's the origins of Jesus? Where is he from? Big companies using origin stories at the moment are finding it pretty successful in terms of marketing. The story will usually include some kind of struggle to get started, a perseverance to get through the tough times, and then a breakthrough moment to success. Pepsi, massive company, lots of subsidiary companies. One of them is Frito-Lay, who make chips, crisps in America. And uh, they have a product called Flaming Hot Cheetos. And actually a film is coming out soon, or has come out, I think, about Flaming Hot Cheetos. I don't think I said that right. And the whole premise of their story is this that there was a janitor working in one of their factories and he came up with this amazing idea for flaming Hot Cheetos. And he pitches the idea to the CEO and then after a struggle of trying to help the CEO think that this is a great product, it's going to really work, he finally gets it over the line and then it becomes a really successful thing. It sells millions and millions um, of bags of crisps. I don't know how many bags of crisps they sell. Um, and then he finds out um, as he's going on that he also is accelerating through the company and getting more and more successful. It's a great origin story. Now, the only problem with it is that the LA Times, right before that film came out, wrote an article to say that it's absolute rubbish. It's like really no truth to it. And I think really what we're seeing here is more suspicion about Jesus' origin story. They're worried. They're dubious. Where did Jesus really come from? They're grumbling, saying, how can Jesus say that he comes from God? How can he do that when actually we know who Mary and Joseph are? He's just their boy. He grew up here after he moved here from Nazareth. Where's this so-called divine heritage? But Jesus reminds them, you need more than a Moses-like Messiah or Savior. You need one who is more than able to provide liberation from Rome. You need a Messiah capable of uniting you to your King, to God himself. A Savior who doesn't just grant independence from rulers and authorities, but from yourself. You need a Savior from your own desires, from your own wandering hearts. And Jesus says in verse 46 that the only way that that is possible is for the Father to draw you to the Son. As he has already said in verse 40. Now he says again in verse 47, by believing in God the Son, you can receive life. The eternal life sourced in Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you believe in him for your life, you are joined to the source of life, to the Word who became flesh. 
as we saw again and again in the people of Israel, saved from Egypt, yet fickle, stubborn, and rebellious. We too are fickle, stubborn, and rebellious. It's true of me in a day, never mind in a lifetime. We constantly find ourselves wanting to choose to be our own gods. But we need more than freedom for a life of independence. We need freedom from a life of independence. True freedom and satisfaction comes in God. We are simply bound to chains of self, of sin, until we are willing to give all of ourselves over to God and to the will of God. And that is what Jesus was doing, constantly giving himself to the will of his Father. And there he finds joy and satisfaction. And now he invites us to be part of it. Just like the Israelites who who ate and then still died, verse 49, we need a better bread, a bread that lasts. And we need drawn and wooed by God away from our wandering hearts to be bound to Christ. Because we are incapable in of ourselves. If it was just up to us, none of us would find God. We need him to come to us, to pluck us out of our miserable pursuit of satisfaction, to find the only true and lasting satisfaction, which is union with Christ. We need the life-giving source of the cosmos to enter into our hearts, to intervene, to call us out. God has intervened. God has drawn us to the Son. And actually the Son to the Father. Wait, that doesn't make sense. He has drawn us to the Son and actually so too we'll find out later in another passage that actually the Son has drawn us to the Father. God has not wrestled us into submission here as we kick and scream. No, in his sovereign love, he has shined his light into our darkness and he's illuminated his goodness. And so you enter in then with thanksgiving and praise. You come joyfully because you come alive. You can't help but fall in love with God when he reveals himself to you. When he destroys all that gets in the way, all of those obstacles, all of those things that we would choose if God didn't intervene and choose us. And he destroys them all so that we can fall madly in love with him and come freely to him and believe. God has wooed you and destroyed all that kept your heart from him. Now you believe. Notice verse 47. God doesn't believe for you. It is you who must believe. It's one who believes that has eternal life. With equal force, and this is constant throughout Scripture, Jesus is clear here. You need God the Father to draw you to the Son, but you also must take active belief in God. Take that step forward to him and say, I want this, Lord. The word call or called is used 
to describe this kind of divine grace, this woo of God, 41 times in the New Testament. Describes God's intervention, his election to save some. And if you've been around the church for five minutes over the last few centuries, you will have heard all kinds of debate and arguments and all kinds of things said about this. Fiery things said about this. I've been involved on both sides, actually. (laughs) Arguments often ensue over this issue between people who, on both sides, want doctrine, belief about God, to be tidy. Really logical, like a spreadsheet. Like I can fit it in my spreadsheet and I can make total sense of it. And often more concerned with tribal loyalty than holding to the harmony of these two truths. They seem paradoxical, but they are beyond our comprehension and full of mystery. And they are good. God has loved me and rescued me, and if it were just down to me and to luck, ugh, and my own comprehension, I'd be done for. But he has not coerced me. He has wooed me and loved me, and I could not help but fall in love with him. What a beautiful mystery. Let's try really hard to remain there. Yes, working through scripture, trying to work out what it says, but also worshipping in the mystery of the glory and the wonder of God, whose ways are beyond ours. Jesus' origins are in the eternal love of Father, Son, and Spirit. And by drawing me to the Son, I and you who believe have been joined to that love. My origin story begins there in eternity, and so does yours. And the last question, verse 52, is a question about whether Jesus can really deliver. A question of provision. The final questions, like the previous one, um, a final question is more of a scoff, <laughs> a grumble echoing around in the synagogue after Jesus has said these things. Maybe some of you felt like scoffing a minute ago. He is not just a bread to eat, he says, but he is flesh to eat. Hmm. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? You can see why it caused them to ask all kinds of questions. It probably caused a really big stir because the law of Moses made the eating of meat with blood still visible and certainly to drink blood as totally forbidden. Anathema to Jews to do that. Like drinking and eating death. But had they connected the two references Jesus has been speaking about all the way through these passages, then they would have seen two messianic Old Testament pictures brought together. The first one is the spotless 
Passover lamb, sacrificed and blood smeared over the doorposts in faith on that first Passover night, which meant that the angel of death passed over them as they put their faith in God and smeared the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. The annual sacrifices given for forgiveness of sin that were visceral, visible for people to see year on year. They'd have thought of that. The second thing they would have thought of would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I keep saying that Jesus is referencing in many of his responses to this, this passage in Isaiah. And ultimately, it's because he wants them to see that he is the suffering servant. He paves the way as the suffering servant for that passage we read earlier in Isaiah 55 that brings us great joy and satisfaction. Jesus is saying, I am what John the Baptist proclaimed. I am the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. I am the Word of Life, Torah made flesh. I am the Messiah. You hadn't figured it out, but oh, I am. And maybe one day you will. I hope you have seen that he is the Lamb of God. I hope you have seen he is the Passover Lamb. I hope you have seen he is the suffering servant. I hope you have seen that it is only in him taking your place on the cross that you can know God too that you can enter into this relationship with God that will bring you eternal satisfaction as you are made one with him in his death. When Jesus is beaten, when his flesh is ripped off his back with barbaric whips, when blood drips from the curse that is pressed in those thorns, the curse of Genesis 3 pressed into his skull and it drips down his face and then he's pierced on that cross and he dies and sheds his blood. He's poured out for you. I hope that you see that Jesus becomes death for you. The only one to perfectly embody the law and not be condemned guilty to death is the one who went to the cross for you. The law had a death warrant over all of us. And he switches that, he changes that because he exchanges his righteousness, his goodness, all the things that would make him unable to be sat under the condemnation of the law instead to fulfill the law he swaps it all for all of our sin all of the things that keep us condemned under the law and he says no condemnation in Christ Jesus you're free you're free because he was willing to go to the cross for you when you believe in him you die with him and you are raised with him Verse 54 is the metaphorical version of verse 50. To believe is to feed. Augustine said it this way, believe and you have eaten. When Jesus says, feed on my flesh, what he means is believe. Oh, that one little word that maybe we think, ah, I've been around the block, I've seen that before, I can't be satisfied by one little word. But who do you believe in? Who do you believe in? If it's Jesus, if it's the word become flesh, then you absolutely can be satisfied in him for eternity.
as the Apostle Paul will describe, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in the sufficiency of his blood that we can trust in his provision. He has provided in such a way that he will never leave us. These Jews wanted a daily filling of manna, but this manna, Jesus, will never end. So much better. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You're kept in Christ. If you believe you're kept in him, his blood guarantees that you do not need to rely on the strength of your belief, but on him who you've put your belief in. Believe for your satisfaction in God through the weakness of God on the cross poured out for you. Jesus, the great I am, given for your sin. That is what keeps you forever and ever. Jesus' total satisfaction is found in the eternal joy of the Father and praise God, it was his will for his Son to be crucified in our place. And it is by his Spirit that he is here today. And for those of you who believe in him, Christ is in you through the Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can trust his authenticity. He is the real deal. We can trust his viability. His salvation works. We can trust in his credibility. We can trust his words. We can trust in his origination. He's come from heaven. And we can trust in his provision. He has delivered and will continue to deliver by his grace.